I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Tortoise. This is a story about Syria. (laughs) But to tell it, I've had to come to Denmark, to a small low-rise block of flats in a suburb of Copenhagen. Actually, it's kind of outside the suburbs. It feels a bit like the middle of nowhere. But these days, it's home to a pretty extraordinary Syrian woman and her family. Umala was probably the first ever female driving instructor in Damascus. But that feels like a very long time ago now. Umala's a small, slim woman in her early 40s, wearing a dark hijab and a warm smile. She takes me into a narrow, glassed-in balcony which runs the length of her kitchen. It's full of plants and it's crisscrossed by a clothesline on which tiny, colourful birds perch. They feel really out of place in this small Danish apartment. And so do the birds remind you of Damascus at all? Yeah, She said the, the birds somehow, but the, mostly the plants. The, the, always the plants remind her the Damascus. <laughs> Mace Katz, an investigative journalist, and like the lady I've come to meet, she's also from Damascus. Mace has brought me here to hear Umala's story, and she's helping translate for me. She doesn't really feel, she feels that she's a guest in her own house because she, she doesn't feel that this is her house or she belongs to the How long have you been staying here? Oh, I guess it's cool. She feels afraid because she lost everything nice in Syria and then now here she doesn't feel that she wants to make the house very nice. Umala was forced to flee Syria, but her house survived the war. What it didn't survive was the aftermath. And it turns out the women she was teaching to drive, it was some of their husbands who were responsible for destroying her home. Most of us have all but forgotten the war in Syria. But while our attentions shifted to Ukraine and now Gaza, President Bashar al-Assad's brutal and bloody war against his own people has paid off. 
With the military help of Russia and Iran, he's regained control of just over two-thirds of the country, pushing back the remaining dissident population and armed rebels to an enclave in the north of the country. A triumphant moment for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. And so confident is he that he's won, that in the last year he's been out on the international stage, shopping for friends and investors. And to what he called foreign interference. It's quite the turnaround. For years, Syria's been a pariah state. Most Arab countries cut all diplomatic ties early on in the war, when it became clear that President Assad had no qualms about killing his own people. But now, after more than a decade of isolation, regional powers have decided that Assad has pretty much won the war and he's not going anywhere. Earlier this year, President Assad looked calm and confident as he spoke at the Arab League for the first time in over a decade. Above all, we must leave domestic affairs to our respective people. Assad knows, in order to stay in control, he needs his neighbours' support and their money to help reshape Syria, to consolidate his win. It's a project that's already underway. And while the world's attention's been elsewhere, the urban landscape in Damascus is being redrawn. Thousands of people like Umala have had their homes and actually their entire neighbourhoods demolished. And out of that rubble, President Assad's planning to build a shiny new Syria, one that reflects his politics and his supporters, a Syria in which dissent never existed. I'm Chloe Hadjimatheou and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, brought to you this week in collaboration with the investigative team at Lighthouse Reports. This is the story of how President Assad became the rubble king. Umala's house, or what she thinks of as her real home back in Syria was in the Kaboon neighbourhood of Damascus. Kaboon was a working-class neighbourhood about six kilometres from the centre of the city. It was mostly made up of unofficial housing. That means not many people had paperwork to prove they owned their homes. The neighbourhood had grown in a higgledy-piggledy way as families built more homes on their plots for newly married children and then grandchildren. That's how it started for Umala, who first moved there as a teenager a young bride moving to be near her husband's family. And they lived there for eight years. And then her mother-in-law, she had a little land in Al-Kabun, and she gave it to them. Uh, and, and then at that time, they built one room. And uh, Then Umala got a job working in an office. She and her husband saved, and in time they built another room and then a small store where they sold cheese and olives. She had more money and then she started doing, like she made stairs, she made another floor and the other, the, the kitchen and the bathroom and everything. And on the roof was this beautiful terrace, her very own oasis, Her husband and kids would often sit up there, listening to the birds and to the gurgling of the fountain. It was a tight-knit community. Everyone knew everyone else. Umala knew the baker and the imam from the mosque, and they knew her. 
In the evenings, people would sit outside their front doors, taking in the jasmine-scented air and chatting to anyone walking by. And I'm describing all this in the past tense because Kaboon as it was then isn't there anymore. But to understand Umala's story and how it tracks the story of Damascus, we need to go back in time, before the rubble. To a time of optimism in Syria, the start of a new millennium, when Bashar al-Assad has just taken over the presidency from his repressive father, and there's this feeling he might herald a new era of openness and freedom. The world is certainly opening up for Umala. Someone called her and he told her to have this school. We're teaching uh, people how to drive. We have a problem that a lot of women, they are uh, like a little bit uh, conservative. And, they don't, want, uh, they don't want to be with man and they want a woman to teach them. So would you like to, to give it a try? Umala starts working as one of the very first female driving instructors in Damascus. Soon, word gets around and she starts making good money, most of which she ploughs back into her pride and joy, her home. Imported bathroom fittings, a modern kitchen. And she chose all this, the, the little... Uh, the handles, the, handles. the details. Yes, the small things. She was really, like, into a detail. She, she talked about the place and the, all the, the forks, the knives that she bought. Everything was really picked nicely. Before long, Umala's reputation as a driving instructor reaches the very top of society. She was uh, giving lessons to many people who are like uh, doctors and rich people and high-profile people and connected as well. She gets to know some of these clients, women from a totally different social class to her. They chat in the car as they drive around their upmarket neighbourhoods. And once or twice when the call to prayer comes in the middle of a driving lesson... They invite her into their large, gated homes to pray. It's obvious that, despite the difference in education and class, they respect Amala. She's mastered this very modern skill that offers women an independence they all aspire to. It's one of the most repressive states in the Middle East, Yet even Syria hasn't managed to completely suppress the calls for freedom that are sweeping the region. Posted online, when the Syrian uprising first starts in 2011, Kaboon's one of the first areas to rebel against the regime. But of course, the Syrian media isn't covering what's really happening on the streets. One day, the phone rings, and on the other end, Umala's surprised to hear the voice of one of the women she's been teaching to drive who just so happens to be related by marriage to President Assad. The woman's calling from her apartment in town and she asks Umala... Uh, how is the, uh, the situation in, uh, in Al-Kabun now? And then she told her that the regime is uh, shooting uh, the people. And she said, no, it's impossible. They, they don't do that. We don't shoot people in, in the street. Are they, like, armed or something? Don't they have weapons? She said, no. And Mala said, no, they, they just go out and they say, we want freedom. Uh, and she said, no, it's impossible. We don't do that. And then Mala told her, 
yeah, but why you say we don't do that? What's your business in this? And then she explained to her that her husband, he has this position. Up until this point, Umala has no idea that this woman's husband is the Kaboon chief of police. It's a connection that will come in handy. One day, Umala's eldest son, Allah, joins the protests and he's arrested. By now, there are terrible stories of how detainees in police custody are treated and the families beside themselves with worry. Their relatives and her uh, brother told her, you don't know anybody, they're like a little bit connected and Alawite people that you train. Then she said, OK, I know this woman. The lady she's taught to drive, the chief of police's wife. And she gave her a call and she told... Umala tells the woman that regime forces have come into Kaboon and killed some young men and arrested many others, including her son. At first, the woman doesn't believe her. It's impossible that they killed people. And uh, she told her, but uh, your son was involved in having a a gun or having a weapon with him. And um, Mala told her, no, he didn't have any weapon. And if he have any weapon, then come and arrest me. Because I'm sure that he he was not uh, uh, armed at all. And then uh, the woman told her, Uh, stop crying and take your tears out and your son will sleep at home today. Ten hours after he's arrested, Umala's son, Allah, is released. He's bruised and bloody and he can hardly walk, but he's home. As soon as he's well enough to travel, he leaves Syria and he goes to stay with family in the Gulf. Still, it doesn't occur to Amala that the rest of them should leave. In towns and cities across Syria, demonstrators often walk straight towards the security services. A few months later, it's evening and the family are sitting in the living room watching TV. The government channel doesn't broadcast any protests, but they switch to satellite and Al Jazeera. The protests in Syria, the only way news of what is happening is getting out is by Syrians uploading footage onto the internet. None of it can be independently verified. Suddenly, Umala's blood runs cold. There on the screen is a very familiar face. Right in the front row of the demonstrators is her younger son, Mohammed. The camera zooms in to catch his impassioned expression. His face was there and he was shouting, Ash-shab, you read, Isqat al-Nidam. That means the... Hafiz is a very famous uh, thing that they used to use. Is like uh, like they were cursing the soul of Hafiz Lestat, the father of Bashar. Umala covers her face with her hands. But next to her on the sofa, Muhammad can't believe he's on TV. He's grinning from ear to ear. And then they saw Muhammad. Oh my God, she, she told him, are you happy? They will arrest you. They will take you. Come, let's go. Umala knows. Now they have no choice. That night, she takes Muhammad to a relative's house in the city centre and then goes back home to pack. Then she and her husband walk out of the house. They close the door behind them. At this point, they think it's just for a few weeks, maybe a month or two. So they leave everything behind. Umala hands the keys to relatives. She's not alone. In 2012, Umala's one of 730,000 Syrians who flee the country. For those who stay behind, there's war. 
Up until 2015, it looks like President Assad might be losing. But then, Russia and Iran step in to bolster him. Kaboon has held out for years. The evacuation from El Kaboon, a neighborhood in eastern Damascus, began on Sunday. But eventually, in 2017, after so many months under siege and a non-stop bombing campaign, the armed rebels and remaining population surrender to Assad's forces. We fought and we stood up against the regime's vicious campaign for 75 days. They destroyed 75% of the district. This is what forced us to broker a deal with the Assad regime, and now we will be forced to evacuate our homes. The residents are given a choice to move to government-controlled areas, swearing allegiance to President Assad, or to get on green buses headed for the rebel-controlled north of the country. Most people take the green buses. Bashar al-Assad repeats this process with all the rebel-held suburbs of Damascus, sometimes using chemical weapons to hasten the victory. And when the whole capital and surrounding areas are completely under his control, he turns his attention to consolidating his power. At this point, Umala's place is still standing. Relatives call her and tell her the house is just as she left it. But then, little by little, she gets word that it's being dismantled. <laughs> Uh, her sister-in-law, she uh, she lived uh, a little bit outside of Al-Kabun. She went to the house and she told them that they took all the doors, all the metal, uh, everything. And they steal all the furnitures from the house and also for the neighbours, not only from their uh, house. She hears that um, all the fittings have been removed. Even the tiles have been stripped off um, the walls. And so then, was the door metal? And she had also this the, the little market on the street, also a metal door. And she said they even took the the water pipes from inside the walls. And also they took from inside the, the walls uh, all the little electricity uh, wires and The entire neighbourhood subjected to this slow dismantling. Like locusts, looters and government contractors strip away everything until there's just concrete shells left where homes had once been. At the end of 2017... Umala hears the most distressing news of all, that her house has been completely demolished. I spent a lot of time online looking at Kaboon from satellite images and watching video footage from Al Kaboon. Kaboon's now empty. But the streets are quiet for only a few weeks before Syrian journalist Bashar Deeb spots regime activity. Bashar's an open-source investigator working for Lighthouse Reports in Europe. So the first videos come out uh, like two or three weeks after the Al-Kabul residents left it. And we, we start to see the first explosions near the highway published by Facebook channels, which are run by people who support the regime. 
What kind of explosions were they? Controlled explosions. You could see videos where there are soldiers. You could see like someone uh, shooting from a distance and you could see like some buildings getting blown up. Bashar and his team watched this going on for weeks. On Facebook, there are announcements from the army explaining that they're detonating unexploded bombs and the Twitter channel of the Syrian Ministry of Defence starts tweeting in advance about explosions. Today, the 27th of September 2018, some engineering units of the Syrian Arab army will detonate explosive devices. Today, some engineering units in the Syrian Arab army will conduct two bombings. The first in the Kaboon area, east of Damascus, and the second... Bashar has documented more than 100 of these government-announced demolitions in Kaboon alone. There are hundreds more in other areas around the city. As the weeks gone by, you start to see on satellite images how the neighbourhood is changing. It's basically this uh, white area growing and growing and growing in the neighbourhood and uh, gradually replacing the buildings. Areas of Kaboon are being systematically demolished. The dusty land where houses once stood now appears as white, empty patches on satellite images. Bashar's convinced the government's up to something. How do you know that it's not true that the Syrian regime is not really just exploding unexploded ordnance? This is a very good question, and this is basically was like the central question in our investigation. The short answer is that this is not how you detonate uh, unexploded material, basically. You don't just blow up all the buildings in the neighbourhood. You have to do it the hard way. You have to go through them one by one, take them out and detonate them in a safe place. What they were doing is basically just blowing up whole buildings in a way which is not consistent with humanitarian demining practices. What's happening is the wholesale destruction of what was once a rebel stronghold. Umala has not only lost her home, her entire neighbourhood has gone. And with it, all the social connections. The Kaboon community, scattered across Syria and around the world, has no anchor, nothing to come back to. They've been erased. To the victor, the spoils. In this case, the broken concrete and twisted metal of a shattered neighbourhood. Because there's money to be made in the aftermath of war. Contracts for all that demolition and clearance are being offered as rewards to those who've been loyal. I left Kaboon in 2017, along with all the other residents being evacuated from the neighbourhood. I'm going to call this man Hussam. I can't tell you much more about him because he's still there, in Damascus, where it's really dangerous for anyone to speak to Westerners, let alone journalists. The security services can arrest you even if you haven't committed a crime. There is so much fear of everything around you in Damascus. Brothers are afraid of brothers, even in the same family. A Syrian investigative journalist working with Tortoise and Lighthouse Reports made contact with Hussam, and he agreed to talk to us. His words are voiced by an actor. These days, Hussam lives in the government-controlled city just outside Kaboon, but he misses his old home. It's true that the neighbourhood was not as civilised as other neighbourhoods in Damascus. But it was quiet and very beautiful. All the residents knew each other and we lived like one family. 
Around four months after Kaboon's evacuated, someone tells Hassam that there's work going for labourers helping clear rubble in the old neighbourhood. But after a few days, we began collecting iron from the rubble of houses whose owners I knew. Hussam's working amid mounds of rubble on streets he's known since childhood. And then he realises these are the ruins of houses he once visited. But at this point, he's just desperate to earn some money. With inflation skyrocketing, it's getting harder and harder to survive in the city. I don't want to lie to you. My concern was to pay my rent. And if I didn't do the work, they would bring someone else in to do it. The whole country is ruined. But now... When I think about the work I did and how I used to pull iron from people's homes, I regret it a lot. What Hussam doesn't know is that his work to extract iron from the broken concrete makes him a cog in a much larger machine because there's a grand plan for Kaboon. And the people who used to live there, people like Hussam and Umala, they're not part of this new vision for the city. After a month and a half, an engineer from a company owned by the Syrian businessman Mohammed Hamshu came here and began giving us instructions. Mohammed Hamshoz, a Syrian politician who's close to the regime. I am the Secretary General of Federation of Syrian Chamber of Commerce. and He's also one of the most important businessmen in the country. He's been sanctioned by the EU, Britain and the US for helping to fund President Assad's atrocities. Now, he's helping Assad consolidate his power base in Damascus. Hamshaw's been working with an elite force of the Syrian army to gather scrap metal and transport it to his metal company to be melted down and resold. Industrial machinery was used to demolish blocks of buildings one by one. Lots of those houses were only partially damaged by the war. They could have been repaired and people could have moved back in but they were completely destroying them. And then when the houses were demolished, it was our job to pull the iron from under the rubble. It's all part of a highly organized operation involving the government. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. The risks posed by AI range from bias in decision-making to misinformation and the misuse of personal information, all at an unprecedented scale. Nearly a quarter of UK businesses understand that the regulatory landscape is changing fast, and nearly half are tracking new regulatory guidance to be responsive to emerging best practice. 
The EY Responsible AI Service helps organisations innovate safely, providing confidence that AI and generative AI technologies are developed and managed ethically, transparently and sustainably, and that potential regulatory and reputational risks are identified and mitigated. Discover how you can create a better working world with AI by going to ey.ai. Al Kaboon's not the only neighbourhood being wiped out of existence. It's happening all around the country in other cities, but also more intensively around the capital where President Assad has his power base. But there's one neighbourhood that stands out because it's something of a showcase for Bashar al-Assad's vision for post-revolution Syria. And because the demolition phase is over and the skeletons of buildings are starting to go up. This is a promo video, and there are dozens more like it, showing CGI images of huge luxury blocks of flats, complete with gyms, swimming pools and rooftop gardens. The videos on YouTube, hashtag Damascus, hashtag future, hashtag luxury living, hashtag investment. This is Marotta City. It's his victory statement. It's his statement on how he wants Syria to be. The regime had plans for Marotta even before the war. It was mostly an area with like um, a lot of houses with, with uh, gardens and agricultural lands uh, between them. But the war accelerated things because like Kaboon, this was a neighbourhood where lots of people protested against the regime. During the war, some 50,000 people were evicted from this area. There are reports that some of those who opposed the evictions were threatened, arrested or disappeared. Around 2016, the regime started demolishing this area. And uh, shortly after, they, they came out with this crazy redevelopment project. Impressive designs, huge long towers uh, that you only see in the Arab Gulf or in New York, like huge towers and huge malls. What's planned for this site is 12,000 apartments, hotels, restaurants and green spaces, more Dubai than Damascus. Some tower blocks are starting to go up and Lighthouse Report's open source investigators have shown us photos of the iron bars being used in these constructions. They carry the logo of Mohammed Hamshaw's factory, the same factory in which scrap iron harvested from Umala's neighbourhood is being melted down. It's a crazy thought. Maybe the very same iron that was taken from Umala's house is going into the new luxury penthouse flats in Marotta. This kind of bitter irony is what Assad's new Syria is built on. This is the president's most ambitious project, but it's one that needs investment to help him concrete over all the death and destruction. But who's going to invest in Syria? President Assad may have the tacit support of businessmen like Mohammed Hamshaw, but it's a stretch to think he can court investment on the scale he needs from his neighbours. 
Most of the countries in the region still see Syria as a crackpot state, the North Korea of the Middle East. Except the regime of Bashar al-Assad does still have some cards to play. There's the pressure of refugees. More than half the population's been displaced, with around 6 million Syrians living abroad. These refugees are a drag on other Arab nations, and the president insists that he wants people to return to the country, that it's safe and they're welcome. But refugees who've chosen to go back often vanish. Entire families absorbed into the vast prison system, never to be heard of again. Are some of these refugees, in your view, yeah. aligned with terrorists? Oh, definitely. Bashar al-Assad was interviewed about this a few uh, years ago. You can find it on the net. The same picture that you saw them, in some cases, of course, in some instances, those terrorists in Syria holding the machine gun or killing people, they are uh, peaceful refugees in, in Europe or in the West in general. Yeah, that's true. And President Assad has another, more surprising bargaining chip. Captagon, a cheap homemade amphetamine, is one of the most in-demand narcotics in the Middle East. It's a meth-like drug that's being produced on an industrial scale inside Syria. The region is under siege. Millions of Captagon pills have been seized by authorities in countries including Italy... For Assad, it's a financial lifeline. But for countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia, it's causing havoc. The message from Assad to his neighbouring Arab states seems to be, I'll ease the burden of Syrian refugees on your countries and I'll tackle the drugs trade if you help me rebuild the Syria I want. And it's by leveraging these kinds of issues that someone widely considered a war criminal has managed what looked impossible a few years ago. He's being greeted warmly by Arab leaders. But the public in those countries, who've watched so many Syrians being killed by their own state, they still need convincing that President Assad is worth making up with. And there are ways the public are being brought on board. There was this one story that was in the news. You probably won't have seen it. It didn't get much traction over here in the West. But in the Arabic-speaking world, it was massive on TV and all over social media at the end of last year. And it all revolved around this little girl. A little girl whose name was Shamal Bakur, who was Syria's entrant into a sort of pan-Arab reading competition. With her long brown hair and huge eyes, this seven-year-old captivated audiences all around the Middle East. Little, little cute little girl and... She, she, she's really amazing at reciting Arabic, Arabic poetry, Arabic so literature. Sham al-Bakur was the youngest ever winner of a very prestigious reading contest hosted by the United Arab Emirates. Sham <laughs> al-Bakur, This little girl was getting huge amounts of coverage. This is Amil Khan. His company, Valent, tracks how disinformation spread by networks online. And he's been following this story closely because he believes this little Syrian girl's victory was no accident. Sham al-Bakur was chosen as the winner by a panel of government-appointed judges in the UAE. 
At the ceremony, she's on stage, standing next to Sheikh Mohammed, the country's ruler. In his white robes and headdress, he towers over her as she clutches a large golden trophy. It's half as tall as she is. And as the cameras flash, the crowd in the huge auditorium in Dubai cheers like mad. And lots of them are waving little Syrian flags. And we thought, this is interesting. This was the first time in seven, eight years, really, that people in the rest of the Arab world will be hearing about Syria in any sort of cultural, everyday media context. Because they've been told by their governments for the last how many years since, since the uprising, that it's a terrible war-afflicted place run by a complete monster. And uh, we're going to have nothing to do with him and we need to remove him, he needs to be removed. What better way to introduce Syria to the Arab stage than a story about a little girl who seems to embody everything the country's had to overcome? And this was the key thing, it was kind of slid in there, that she was from Aleppo and she was lucky to have survived because the terrorists were bombing her city and her whole country and city had been destroyed by these terrible terrorists. Because that's the story President Assad sells, that there was no revolution fueled by social and political grievances, that it was all Islamists backed by a CIA plot. This isn't a story most of the Arab world has bought, but now the public's being told that maybe Assad's not so bad after all. What the Sham al-Bakul campaign, and I'm very sure it was a campaign, did very expertly was to reintroduce Arab audiences to an idea of Syria that they had sort of sitting in the back of their minds that facilitated diplomatic moves that allowed the regime to rehabilitate itself. So what this looked like was a very orchestrated opportunity for Syria to reintroduce itself to Arab audiences. How do you know this wasn't just a true story that got picked up because this girl is so cute and so sweet? Why does it necessarily have to be propaganda, if that's what you'd call it? Yeah, I'd call it propaganda. I'd call it quite sophisticated propaganda. It wasn't organically spread. It's clear, and there's evidence, data-led evidence, that shows there was an effort to make sure it bombarded people's timelines across the Middle East, across the Arab world. It seemed like President Bashar al-Assad had won the war both on the ground and in some diplomatic circles. But then, something unprecedented happened. Last month, a court in France issued an international arrest warrant for President Assad for crimes against humanity. It's the first time ever that a sitting head of state has been charged by a foreign court. What does that mean in practice? Well, France could request the president's extradition from any nation it has an agreement with. The most immediate result of this has been that Bashar al-Assad didn't take up an invitation to attend the COP28 climate change conference in Dubai. The Arab states invited him out and the French helped put him back in his box. Brushing his crimes under the carpet may not be as easy as the Syrian president hoped.
One of the most painful things about being a refugee is not just losing your home, but also the career and business you spent so many years building. Umala doesn't speak any Danish, so she can't carry on her work as a driving instructor. But she isn't the kind of woman who can sit still either. These days, she works as an Uber Eats delivery driver. Losing your house, the neighbourhood, the neighbours, the relatives, the people around you, going to another country and living there. And she never planned that she would stay outside of Syria. The Syrian government says that it's clearing areas that have been destroyed and that it's clearing places that are no longer livable because there was so much destruction that the only choice they had for an area like Al Kaboon was to completely demolish it and rebuild from scratch. What do you think about that? Uh, she said that it looks for her that it was really planned that because her own house, the, the building, was uh, totally fine, in a good condition. And there's also other buildings that she knows they were also uh, able to, to live in and they were not damaged at all, but they demolished also uh, all these buildings. So she thinks that this kind of, that they coordinated that and they wanted to demolish things so people cannot uh, come back again and, and live again in that area. She said that the, he uh, wanted to get rid of uh, all the communities they are against him, and uh, he did that already. Some, some of them. It's strange to think of that woman, the wife of the chief of police who helped Umala get her son released from custody. Despite all the horrors, all the death and destruction, for people like her who are connected to the regime, life has probably changed very little. As she drives around the city, perhaps passing by the rubble of what used to be Umala's neighbourhood, I wonder if she ever thinks of her old driving instructor. Do you have her number? Would you ever think about calling her up and telling her what's happened to your home? Now she said, uh, no, I, I don't have her number because um, I lost the chip uh, card and all the numbers, they were there. But Umala does have things she'd like to say to the woman she taught to drive. Yeah, it would be really important and I, I wish that I could call her and talk to her. She said, everybody around Damascus in Al-Ghuta and Al-Kabun, we lost a son or a relative or a house or a husband and they are still living there happy and having their parties and she really would like to call her and ask her if she's happy about what happened to us and to our house and to our kaboon uh, and how does she feel about that she wished that she had the number now that really would be something one half of Syria placing a call to the other half of Syria just to remind them that they still exist The Slow Newscast was reported by me, Chloe Hadjimatheu, and by the investigative team at Lighthouse Reports. The producer was Katie Gunning. Sound design was by Dominic Delaghi. The editors were Jasper Corbett and Kerry Thomas. Talk. 
tortoise. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. The risks posed by AI range from bias in decision-making to misinformation and the misuse of personal information, all at an unprecedented scale. Nearly a quarter of UK businesses understand that the regulatory landscape is changing fast, and nearly half are tracking new regulatory guidance to be responsive to emerging best practice. The EY Responsible AI Service helps organisations innovate safely, providing confidence that AI and generative AI technologies are developed and managed ethically, transparently and sustainably, and that potential regulatory and reputational risks are identified and mitigated. Discover how you can create a better working world with AI by going to ey.ai. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.